0: Welcome back to DC EKG with myself, Joe Grogan, Eric Euland, and today, Mark Paoletta, co author or co editor, however you want to describe it, with Michael Pack of Created Equal about Clarence Thomas. So, let's, you've known Clarence Thomas for uh, 30 years. You got to know him when you were a young uh, staffer, young attorney in the White House counsel's office, and Clarence Thomas was nominated. For at that, did you know him uh, when he was nominated for the D.C. Circuit or the, or the Supreme Court? So or we only have a circuit?
1: small time of, of, of to talk about this, right? But, um, but I met him first in 1983 when I was a college senior uh, and um, uh, in a in an event up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, and I still remember that meeting. Uh, he was then the EEOC chairman, okay. and I had come up. Uh, um, my uncle was the mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut, of all things, a Republican, of all things. And um, it Matt, did happen, people. Met Clarence Thomas then. Uh, f- f- flash forward to 1989, and I was in first presidential personnel in the White House. Okay, and I was on the Judicial Selection Committee, uh, which they had back in the day. Uh, we used to meet in the Roosevelt room, uh, every week to talk about judicial. And I that's not how
0: wait, 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 stop. That's not how President Trump did it, right? No, no. that was not all run out of White not House not quite counsel. how yeah. we did it, yes. Right. Yes. So, exactly. so back then, this is Bush 41, yeah. It's, there's a there's a in presidential personnel, there's a setup.
1: To- no, no, no. Well, presidential personnel was a a a, 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 a a a part of the judicial selection committee, which was run by the attorney general. Okay. Uh, and the White House Counsel was in there, and the chief of staff, and you know, okay. a number of people, legislative affairs, presidential personnel. Everyone got together in their aides. So I was in presidential personnel. But I was dedicated staffer to to working on this stuff, and I was the first person to reach out to Justice. Then, then EEOC Chairman Clarence Thomas in I think March of 1989 to to ask him to send me over all of his written materials, as speeches and articles and and that sort of thing, so we could start the process of review. You know, kind of, kind of vetting him. Whether or not. Yeah. And so, Wait, but
0: that, hold on a second. Back up. So, was that your idea, Mark Pielota? Said I know this dude. I met him. No, at no, 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 okay.
1: no. He had been on people's radars okay, uh, about it. about, and they had talked to him. But in terms of that first official sort of reach out, it was in uh, in I think February March of nineteen eighty nine. Okay. I, I still have the letter. Uh, okay. I got it from the the archives uh, when neat. we were doing uh, Justice Thomas's book, his memoirs. Um, but yeah, I met him then in, in uh, with, you know, for, for the D.C. Circuit, helped on that, he offered me actually a clerkship to the D.C. Circuit at the end of that process. Um, I love working in the White House, and I remember uh, Justice Thomas saying, and you guys know my 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 personality. He goes, Mark. I'd love to have you clerk for me, but I want you to understand it'll be like entering a monastery. It's completely different than it is here. <laughs> and uh, I went to the White House Counsel's office, uh, colleagues uh, Lee Liberman, Otis Now, Lee Liberman, Otis, and yep. said, you know, I have this I have this offer. Uh, I think I should take it. And she said, if you can come down to the White House Counsel's office, would you stay here? Uh, and wow. so that was an even better job uh, for me. Uh, and so I went down to the counsel's office as a result of that offer from Justice Thomas. And then flash forward to 1991, he, when he gets picked to be uh, nominated to, to, to go on the Supreme Court, I worked on his confirmation 24-7. I became sort of his closest aide during that process and went through that hell, which is what it was, right? And um, learn, you know, you know, you know saw this man go through this and stand strong and um and it's it's left a mark on me to this day every day every single day i'm informed by it um and then shortly after his confirmation we can talk about that we you know um, um i was diagnosed with cancer and in 1992 when i was still in the white house and clarence had just justice thomas had just you know obviously gotten through this terrible ordeal he's on the court it's his first term, but every single day, I was going through my treatment. He called me or came by my house, uh, and, um, and, and to me, that was kind of the bond that formed between us, that I was there when he went through hell, and then when I was going through hell, um, he was there for me, um, and I have this photo in my basement um, um, w- where my hair grew back uh, after chemo, and it was curly, uh, strangely, yeah. and um, mm. or maybe not strangely, no, and and and, um, uh, and he wrote, "Great hair, buddy, we survived." <laughs> and it's a you know so um, so that's how, that's how I met him. That's how our our deep friendship formed, and I've been a uh, very close friends with him since then. And it's neat to be somebody who's a dear dear friend and a hero to me. I mean, I I, I truly think he's our greatest living American. He's our greatest justice, and it's on so many levels he's the you know when you you saw Sonia Sotomayor recently talk about how Justice Thomas is the most beloved person in the court right he knows everyone is just I say from the janitor to the justice right to a justice and he's kind and giving and you know when I say fun he's just a a very joyful person and cares about every single person he meets and when you're his friend it's even then some you know what I mean he's always there for you uh, your family he has about 150 former clerks now. Mm. And when you talk to those clerks, uh, how he has kind of time in his day, you know, to, 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 to be a friend to all of these people and more is, is astonishing to me, even knowing him as well as I do.
2: And certainly in the book, he lays out his process of reviewing cases with his clerks, yeah. which just demonstrates anew how much time he is dedicating both to his job and yet his personal life as well and his friends.
1: So let me tell you just a little bit about the book. So the the book came out of um, actually um, a follow-on to a movie that was made in, uh, it came out in 2020, early 2020, called um, uh, Created Equal, which of the same name, Clarence Thomas in his own words. And that was sort of an effort coming out of what I thought were the continual attacks on Justice Thomas uh, by the left, by the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, that sought to undermine and smear him for forty years, from the day he came to town and came into the, the Reagan administration. And I wanted to make a movie that told Justice Thomas's story fairly. So through some friends, I connected up with Michael Pack, and Michael Pack, who's this great documentary filmmaker. He's made about fifteen films, um, all of them on PBS. He was interested in making it, and we were going forward to it. At, at that point, though, Justice Thomas had not agreed to be interviewed uh, for the for the for the film. Uh, but after several months and talking to the justice, he agreed to do it, and he ended up sitting down for 25 hours with Michael Pack, one-on-one interviews uh, about his life, right? From, from being born in the segregated South in 1948 to um, in utter poverty, utter poverty. That's the part that people don't truly understand, but it was, he was born in a shack. With born the, in a it, shack, right?
2: walking to and fro, school through sewage, raw sewage. Yeah, working uh, in incredibly tough conditions with, to your point, people uh, who he's working with every day as a kid who are either freed slaves or the sons and daughters of freed slaves.
1: Absolutely. And again, it's, it's born into this, it, it, again, his it, wonderful people, but uneducated, illiterate, right, in, ter- in terms of being, and, and he talks about two, so let me just go back to the, so the, the movie came out, in 2020, right, it was a tremendous success. It was on PBS. It was in movie theaters. I'd urge your listeners to to to, to watch it. I sat there for all those interviews, right, 25 hours, uh, and I was helping Michael on it and sort of the research and that sort of stuff. But watching those exchanges and seeing, wow, that's a killer quote. That's a great exchange. All these things that I thought were great that didn't make it into the movie, right? Because you only have two hours, right? right? For a movie, you have 25 hours of tape, and probably in that movie with the film clips and all that sort of stuff, you, you, know, you probably have, you know, that. an hour and a half, maybe, at most, hour and 15 minutes. So all, so when the movie was kind of getting done, and all this stuff was f- falling to the cutting room floor, it was killing me. And so as we, you know, as it got near the end, um, I thought, what better way sort of to get this out and then to make a movie, uh, to make a book, you know, package up all of the—I don't want to call them outtakes, right? But the stuff that couldn't get into the film, um, which really just—it's—it's fl- it's, so the book is is the same thing. It's a chronological discussion of Justice Thomas's life um, from, as I said, growing up in the segregated South to going into the seminary, falling away from his Catholic faith, or, or I should say, the Catholic Church, um, and uh, becoming a sort of a um, you know a, a, a real radical, left wing radical in college. And then coming back uh, to his the, the church and the values of his grandfather. I'll, I'll get to his grandfather in a second. Um, and then going on to the su- Supreme Court. So that's what the book is. Um, it's a it's a it's a book le- length interview with Clarence Thomas. I think it's unprecedented for any Supreme Court justice to have sat down for 25 hours on film. Uh, and um, and so you really get to know Justice Thomas in this book. You so know, he
2: had. So he wrote a great book. My grandfather's son. You just mentioned the influence of his grandfather. Talk about that for a moment. The the circumstances that brought Justice Thomas to the influence of his grandfather and that lifelong impact that his grandfather's had on him.
1: Yeah. So 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 he was born, you know, in 1948 to a mom who had three kids. Um, you, you know. Um, and um, she couldn't take care of them. She was a maid working in, in, in the South, right? And she was actually living in Savannah, and, and, and Clarence and his two siblings were living uh, w- with an aunt in Pinpoint, where the family's from in Pinpoint, Georgia, which is a little bit outside of Savannah, Savannah Georgia, so, on the water. And, um, and, um, and so she asks her, 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 grand, her, her father uh, to help raise the kids. Um, and so Clarence and his brother Myers— uh, when Clarence is seven years old, you know, walk—it's two blocks. Ultimately, Clarence is first living in Pinpoint, this shack that he was born in burns down. He goes to live with his mother, who is living in a tenement in in Savannah, where is this open sewage, and it's just a horrible. He's sleeping on a, literally a chair. There's one bed. His younger brother and mom are sleeping in that. Clarence sleeps in a in a um, in a chair, and there's no heat. Okay, so d- down in the winter in Savannah, it gets cold, mm-hmm. and so that's the life he's living until one day he says he walks these two blocks. His, his mother tells him to pack up his belongings into a bag. He it's a it's a it's a it's a paper bag. It's filled halfway. He and his brother, that's all of his belongings, and he walks down to his grandfather's home and his grandmother. Um, and that's where he lives for you know until he goes off to, to college. Um, and, um, and
0: he called it a palace.
1: Called it a palace, but literally when his when he, the first thing his his grandfather says to the two the two boys are the damn vacation is over. <laughs> it's going to be rules and regulations. And so his grandfather he calls him he he's a tough disciplinarian, but as Clarence said. Love these kids because he got them ready for this this tough world. To get them ready, no excuses. You know, do your work. A work ethic. Never give in. As as his grandfather says, "Old man Kant is dead. I helped bury him." Yeah. There's
0: okay? a Statue. There's a picture in the book for for those uh, who can who can pick up the book uh, of a bust of Clarence's um, grandfather, and it was given to him by uh, his wife, Ginny Thomas. And right there, the bust of his grandfather, and then underneath it, it says, "Old Man Can is dead. I helped bury him." Uh, from Myers Anderson, 1907 to 19,
1: 1983. Yeah, and th- th- the impact on, on Clarence is just profound. It changed his life. And so, and, I'll, and and then the next thing that happens, kind of in terms of what, what Clarence calls interventions, is his um, grandfather, grandparents, grandfather enrolling him into the Catholic school. In the segregated South, it was called St. Benedict's, which was run by these Irish nuns, you know, straight from Ireland, uh, tough Irish nuns who are, are teaching, you know, in a segregated school, and, and they give these black students hope, right? They love them, they believe in them, they hate segregation, and they're all equal in God's eyes, and they're all equal under the law, despite what the law, you know, it, it does down there. And it's those two influences that run through Clarence's life. To this day right when you listen to clarence thomas talk about uh his you know the, the formative influences it's his grandfather and it's uh it, it's the nuns and as you see there's another photo in this book at the end of sister virgilius the the kind of the, there's a number of nuns that had a, a huge impact on on justice thomas sister virgilius actually testified he was she was the principal and eighth grade teacher uh who um uh, clarence thomas's eighth grade teacher uh, who testified for him during the hearings, uh, the first set of hearings, and again just to, to tell you a little bit about this this guy. In the '80s, he goes back to see, see, seek out his nuns. Now his they're teachers, retired now. His right. teachers. He calls them his nuns uh, <laughs> to thank them for you know teaching him and inspiring right. him, and as he said, never letting us fall into victimhood, demanding them to to perform at the highest levels despite. What the what the world was? I'm gonna I'm not gonna give you any excuses. You are gonna get A's. That you're gonna you know reach your God-given potential, and um, and then when we when he went on the court, um, and as I mentioned, uh, Sister Pagliuas testified for him. Set for for about 15 years after he went on the court, uh, Justice Thomas and I would go up to the retirement community in Tenafly, New Jersey, where the nuns lived in a retirement home mm-hmm. uh, about. Sixty of them, 70 of them, the youngest one was probably in her 60s. The oldest one at Wedding Point was 108. And we'd go up there for the day. I'd get up, I'd go over his house around six in the morning. We'd drive up, get up there like around 9:30 and spend until about two o'clock with the, with the sisters, have lunch with them. And he'd go and every single one, you know there were a bunch in the infirmary, go visit them. But that's the kind of guy he is. He never forgets. You know, and one of the things that Justice Sotomayor said recently, right, in those very kind comments was that Justice Thomas thinks that people can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? And Sotomayor said something like, some people can't reach their bootstraps. Justice Thomas has never, ever said that, right? Hard work and a community, right? Your your family, your, your, you know, so here it's the nuns and his grandparents and many other people, but in particular those two people who helped him, that he says, without them, but for them, I wouldn't be here.
2: So off those two key interventions, to your point, affecting his entire life, those also inform his approach to his jurisprudence, how he thinks about, to think about cases in front of him. Talk for a moment, if you could, a little bit about how he approaches every time a case comes to him at the Supreme Court.
1: Justice Thomas is an originalist, right? And when you say that, what that means is you're trying to, your your goal, your focus is to discern what the original meaning of those those phrases, those terms are in the Constitution or in the text of a statute. And you and the most important thing is you have this humility that it's not what I want, it's not what I think is best. It's what was was ratified or enacted. And so, he mentions it actually in there that. Um, it's this, this passage, and it's again, it's just a, it's a wonderful book. Not because I co-edited it, right? It's because Justice Thomas's words are there, and you're hearing him talk about all sorts of things. His favorite books, or the most informative books, the most informative movies for him. But he makes a reference that um, Justice Scalia, who is extremely close with, right? And if you look at the, if you look, you look at the record, it was Justice Thomas probably pulling Justice Scalia closer to him uh, <laughs> over the years than, than, than vice versa. Um,
0: Even though the media portrayed it the opposite—that somehow uh, Scalia was leading—Clarence Thomas, Thomas
1: was it. his puppet. That he was unable right. to do his work. The most racist, outrageous tropes of all that have been perpetrated on Clarence Thomas. That's why, in terms of making the movie, making the book, uh, you know, um, it was important to me because he is our greatest, our greatest justice. And when you look at his impact right now, um, you know. All of these decisions, Justice Thomas has written, here's a over 700 opinions. He writes the most opinions uh, per year of any justice. Many years it was in the 30s. And when I say 30s, 33 opinions, 35. Some justices like Justice Kagan write 10, 11 on an annual basis. Out of a
2: caseload of around 100, 110, 120? It's actually a little bit low now. It's, it's really? around
1: 80. But remember, you can write uh, concurrences. And, opinions. And, and, right. And so Justice Thomas has written many, many you know, opinions in dissent, solo dissent sometimes. Uh, or concurrences in all of those opinions now because he's been doing it for 30 years and I think he had this project I'm going to lay out you know no matter what in all different parts of the Constitution as we take up these cases what you know unencumbered by what what I'll call precedent is right this idea that you know you need to stick with what this is I think uh, you, you know what's been decided and I think Justice Thomas in part I think from his upbringing right and what he's been through is that um, I'm going to go back to the text of the and Constitution. I'm going to go back and, you know, thank you very much for this. As I think he says in here, he equates it to, um, again, it's, it's, he's talking about jazz music and how everyone is supposed to like Hugh Massaquila <laughs> when he was going to uh, yes. Ho- Holy Cross. Now, I had mm-hmm. never heard of Hugh Masekela; I had to look him up. But he's like, everyone's supposed to, like, love Hugh. I didn't have anything against Hugh Masekela. I didn't want to listen to Hugh Masekela. I wanted to listen to, you know, other music. And he says, it's like precedent. Like, oh, uh, you know, everyone thinks this, you know, I'm supposed to stop thinking. Uh, forget that. And that's his approach to judging, which is to be, you know, t- t- to look at what the Constitution says and apply it as faith- faithfully as you can and not to let your—and pol- I think he thinks it's a corruption of our system to have a judge substitute what he thinks is the right answer, right, or the right policy than what was enacted by the people, right? And, um, um, and so that's his approach to judging. I, I get almost in the book. He talks about how his Catholic sort of formation and the process of getting to the right answer informed his his judging. Uh, right, which and, is and an
2: important distinction. Some people think with well, Catholicism drives this outcome. No, it's how to think about a problem that helps him determine what the answer should that,
1: be. That's exactly right. That's, and, and, and whatever that answer is, it, it, you know, he, he's going to use the process to get there, um, you know, uh, and, and not have a preconceived notion of what that result or answer should be.
0: So this, unfortunately, is a terribly truncated conversation, because I think whether it's the oversight or the conversation of your relationship with uh, Clarence Thomas and the outstanding book for anybody interested in the court or just an amazing American story that you lay out. Here with Michael Pack about the uh, about Justice Thomas. It's been a great discussion, but unfortunately we're we're out of time, and we'd love to continue the discussion in a in a future episode uh, down the road. But thank you uh, for listening to DC EKG and Mark and Eric. Thanks for being here. This was great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mark. We appreciate it.